Well, hey, everybody. I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, today we're continuing our study in the book of Acts with uh, Acts chapters 6 and 7. Now, I certainly wish that we could be doing this together in person, um, but this is what we've got for now. But uh, one advantage to taking in teaching this way uh, is that you've got a pause button. Uh, you get to do all of this on your schedule, uh, and you can pause me at any time and come back to this. Uh, you couldn't do that on a Sunday morning. And if you haven't read Acts uh, 6 and 7 in a while, I would encourage you to take advantage of that pause button. Just hit it now and uh, come back or go, go and, and read those chapters and then uh, and then come back to the teaching um, there. We've got a lot of ground to cover and it might be helpful if you just have have read it through at least once before we dive in together. And when it when it comes to our study of the book of Acts, um, I'm really glad that Darcy introduced it all by focusing on Acts chapter 1, verse 8, um, which reads, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, this verse serves as such a helpful anchor for our study of this book. I, I mean, it's, it's a helpful anchor for the narrative that, that Luke takes us on, uh, that the Holy Spirit is the source of power, the call of the disciples is simply to tell of Christ and that they are to take that message uh, to their immediate surroundings, um, but then also to their nation and to the rest of the world. And Luke kind of writes Acts with that whole narrative arc in mind, from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And when we get to Acts uh, 6 and 7, we have this final portion of the Jerusalem chapter uh, of that story. And so far, we've seen the disciples uh, taking the message about Christ uh, and, and building the church all from within uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, we've seen both rejection and acceptance of the gospel. Uh, we've seen a beautiful unity uh, in the church. Um, but we've also seen uh, last week with the story of Ananias and Sapphira that the community isn't perfect. And they've got some things to work out. Um, and that's kind of actually where we start in chapter 6. Um, we start with a conflict. And chapter 6, verse 1, uh, reads like this. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, um, the Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking um, or Greek-speaking Jews or Gentile converts who were likely born outside of Palestine, uh, while the Hebrews were native Palestinians that probably spoke uh, Hebrew or Aramaic and or Aramaic. So at a minimum, between these two groups, there's kind of a benign like language and, and cultural barrier. Um, but depending on what source you read, what notes in your study Bible, um, some are going to suggest that this is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the antagonism uh, between these two groups, that there was like a long-standing um, cultural conflict there. Um, but either way, what, either one of those, um, we see in this passage, in this conflict, that the early church considers caring for people's physical needs like finances and food as really, really important. And they were attempting to, to address those things in their community. But we also see that they were doing it imperfectly, um, that there was still some messiness and imperfection around um, how, they were, how they were operating, how they were carrying out um, the mission. 
And so whether this is an innocent oversight because of a language barrier or whether it's something a little bit more malicious than that, the early church has some practical things to work out uh, and they deal with that right away. So in verses two through six, we see uh, the apostles, the 12 apostles leading the church back into a state of, of unity. Uh, they get everybody together and they're like, hey, look, this is not uh, this is not good um, for us to have to shirk our responsibilities when it comes to teaching uh, and prayer in order to resolve these practical issues. Um, we need to maintain our focus. So, so let's do this. Choose seven men from among you to take the responsibility of making sure that nobody gets missed. Uh, they should be wise and spirit filled men men whom you trust and they can take this on so that we can continue to focus on prayer and teaching and everybody's like yep that's great here's seven men the apostles commission them and that's really the last that we hear about this conflict and so this is like these first six verses a relatively quick little story um, but there's some interesting things uh, packed in here i mean first of all it's just a great example of kind of tackling an issue head-on getting it dealt with and restoring unity quickly. I mean, even if the implication in verse one is that there is this really tense uh, cultural division between these two groups and there's, there's animosity between them, um, by verse five, you've got both groups, the whole congregation in agreement on, on how to address the issue and, and what seven men to appoint. And that progression is a pretty great picture of the power of the spirit to bring unity uh, in his church. And there's a few other things that are worth pointing out. I mean, um, first, the importance of both word and deed in the ministry of the church. I mean, the, the apostles simultaneously elevate both the importance of the ministry of the word, that is like teaching and prayer, um, as well as the ministry of deed, things like caring for people's physical needs. They're saying teaching and prayer is, is far too important for us to be distracted by anything, um, but people's physical well-being is also too important for us to let it slip through the cracks. Um, doing both of these things are essential expressions of, of the gospel, and we need, to, we need to make sure they're both covered. It's either or, not, not, um, it's not either or, it's both and. And we do well um, today to make sure that uh, that kind of heart uh, is reflected in our own thinking, in our own church culture, in our own missional practice, in our community, um, that we're thinking uh, about the ministry of the word and teaching and prayer, um, as well as the ministry of, of deed. Uh, the second thing to point out here is that uh, we see a precedence um, for multiplicity of leadership in the church. Within the church body, the load of ministry and, and service and work and advancing the kingdom, it needs to be shared. Um, it's a healthy thing to, to kind of divide and conquer. Uh, too much on one person or even a group of people will just spell burnout and things are going to get dropped. And you know, that's not a complicated truth. Uh, it's, it's sort of intuitive. I mean, we see this um, play out in business all the time. I mean, different qualified people are given different domains of leadership and responsibility in businesses. I mean, one guy's going to take on sales. One guy's going to kind of lead the day day the day-to-day -day operations. Um, and when you've got multiple crews working, you know, you're going to appoint a foreman for each, each one. Um, there's a role for everybody. Um, and it's not healthy or practical for responsibility and leadership to rest with too small of a group of people. Um, you know, we divide and conquer. 
and and so it should be uh, with the church. We we need to share the load together, um, and and that task of leadership and responsibility, um, whatever the actual task is, like it's meant to be carried out by people who are led by the Spirit. Like just because these seven men were appointed to take on like a really intensely practical task, uh, they were not exempt from the um, the call to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. And that call remains for us as, as we serve as well. Each task is important and, and each role is spiritual. So the work of the Spirit through his people, it's not restricted to teaching. It's not restricted to ministry of prayer and the word. Uh, it's in the cooking of, of a meal for new parents. It's, um, it's in giving someone a ride to an appointment. It's in the trenches of practical help uh, to the people that need it. Spirit filling and guidance is for all, not just for the 12 apostles who are primarily responsible for teaching, but also for the seven Greek men uh, who were to wait on tables. Not just for certain offices and church leadership, but all for, uh, for all who are engaged in the work of spreading the kingdom of God and advancing it. And so these seven men, um, these seven men that have been appointed uh, as trustworthy and spirit-led spirit men, um, you know, we, we never hear about them again, at least five of them. Like, we, we, ha we don't hear anything. Uh, that's, that's really it. Uh, the first two we actually do hear a little bit more, though. Um, so Stephen's story uh, is, is captured in, in the last half of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, which we're about to go over. Uh, and then Philip's story is covered in chapter 8, uh, which Darcy will cover next week. But here in chapters 6 and 7, uh, the remainder of them, we have the story of Stephen. Uh, and I'm sure many of us are familiar with his story. Uh, he's the first martyr of, of the Christian church, the first one to be killed uh, because of his faith in Christ. Now, one thing I didn't really realize before a few weeks ago uh, is that the word martyr that we associate with Stephen, um, it actually comes from the word for witness. So even that label that we have um, for Stephen as a martyr, it draws our thinking back to Acts uh, 1 verse 8 and the call to be Christ witnesses. And certainly as we read about Stephen, we realize like, yeah, man, this, this guy was fulfilling that call in his life as well and as in his death. He's active in the church. He's teaching people in the synagogue. He's doing signs and wonders. Like he's on it. He's witnessing about Christ. And then we also see this amazing story of his death and how he accepts death with, with such grace. Um, and uh, Luke kind of presents him as as a type of Christ. Like the whole narrative about his, his death just kind of echoes back to the narrative of Christ's crucifixion. Um, he's falsely accused. Uh, there's false witnesses brought against him, just like there was against Jesus. Um, he's an innocent man murdered by religious leaders. And then late in the chapter, he utters two phrases. Um, you know, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Two things that just like obviously point back uh, and remind us of Christ's death on the cross and, and how he accepted um, uh, he accepted it there. Uh, so Stephen accepts it with just grace. Um, and, and not anger, even though he's totally unfairly condemned. Um, obviously, this man had a heart that was uh, in line with the heart of Christ. And so in his life, in his death, he's, he's a witness about, about Christ. 
And so typically, I've always looked at this story as just an uh, inspiring tale of Stephen's courage and character as he's martyred. And it definitely is that. Um, but as I read it again in the last few weeks and dove into it, I was reminded that this story, it has like really intensely tragic undertones. And, and not just because he's an innocent man that's, that's murdered, um, but because he's murdered by religious leaders, like men who are supposed to be seeking God and, and leading his people. This group is the Sanhedrin or the council, and its exact function and makeup isn't clear to historians, um, but we do know that it's a political and religious powerhouse um, in the nation of Israel, um, made up of elites, like people who are making decisions and judgments and, and leading people. Um, they're a respected group, uh, and yet they, they basically mob Stephen in rage. I mean, these are the very people that should be well acquainted with the prophecy and, and on the lookout for a Messiah, but they continue to reject the message and the truth that he has already arrived. And, and Stephen's uh, sermon is like, it's highlighting uh, that rejection. It starts basically in, in chapter 7, verse 1, and goes on for 50 verses. And again, if you haven't read through it in a while, maybe just take, take a little bit of time to do that. Um, it's a great stepwise summary of watershed moments in Israel's history. If nothing else, it's just a great summary of Israel's history. Um, it puts together in order a lot of the common uh, stories we know from Sunday school. Um, I mean, go through it with your kids. Like they're going to recognize a lot of the stuff in here. They also might point out uh, a number of omissions. You know, like there's no story of David and Goliath. Uh, there's no Daniel in the lion's den. Some of those, some of those big common ones that we know about. Um, because those are important stories and those are, we have definitely can learn a lot from them. Um, and God was at work in them, but, but they're not necessarily watershed moments or high points in kind of the, the full narrative story of, of, uh, Israel's history. Um, they're not necessarily the turning points. And, um, and Stephen, what he's doing here is highlighting some like really key, uh, turning points along the way as God brings the nation of Israel from covenant, uh, with Abraham all the way to fulfillment in the Messiah. And when I read through this sermon again and really tried to like decipher, like, what is Stephen trying to say to his audience? Like, what is he trying to say to those people there? I was shocked at how like scathing of a condemnation his sermon is. Like, this is not a seeker friendly sermon. If somebody had proofread his manuscript, uh, they may have warned him against preaching it like this. Um, but from what we can tell from the text, like Luke says, he's full of the spirit. And in the way that he dies, uh, we know that he is preaching from a spirit-led and a grace-filled place. But it is a hard message. Uh, so in his summary of Israel's history, he basically is saying to the religious leaders, like, your ancestors have a history of rejecting God and those he sends, and you are no different. He tells the story of Joseph and how their patriarchs sold him into slavery, um, the one that, that God would deliver them through. They just left for dead. And then 400 years later, when they're enslaved in Egypt, God raises up Moses, but he's rejected on several occasions. First, when he tries to defend his fellow Israelites from, uh, and he ends up killing an, an Egyptian. They say, like, who made you ruler over us? And then 40 years later, he returns, leads them out of Egypt, and then they start complaining as soon as they're out. Like, we want to go back there. 
And then after all of that, um, when he goes to get the law from the God who led them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, when he goes up on the mountain to get, uh, to, to get this law and to be able to explain uh, to the people how to live under God's power and his rule and to prosper um, and, and to have a relationship with him, like he comes down off the mountain and they're worshiping a golden calf. Like Israel had a history of rejecting God and wandering from him. And when they sent, when he sent prophets, they persecuted them. They killed them. You know, we might know the story of, uh, or the, the modern parable of the man who's kind of like trapped on his roof during a flood. He prays for, for help and a rowboat comes by and a speedboat comes by and a helicopter comes by, but he rejects them all, you know, and then asks God, like, why didn't you save me? And God says, like, I sent you two boats and a chopper. And, and Israel's history is like, it's almost like a version of that, but it's, it's this like darker uh, rejection uh, of God. And, and Stephen reflects, or Stephen delivers his final punch in, in verses 51 to 53, when he says, he says to the council, you men are a, you, you men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. This is obviously like a tough message. He's basically saying, you guys, like you're just like your fathers. You asked for a Messiah and then you killed him. And we all may be thinking at this point, like, Stephen, did you really just go there? I mean, one, one wise man told me when, uh, when preaching, it's always good to encourage nine times and challenge once. I guess this was Stephen's once. Um, and we, we might think like, ah, oh, that wasn't really a good idea, Peter, to go there. But again, like in Luke's telling of this story, I mean, Stephen's face is like an angel at the, at the beginning. And, and we see in his, his character and reception of, of his death in, in total grace that, that like he was spirit led here and he was, he was spirit driven to, to say these things. And it was just a tough message. Um, and the council was obviously convicted by that. Uh, in verse 54, it says, uh, uh, that they were enraged, you know, and they, and they rushed at him. Um, it's the same phrase that being enraged is the same phrase as in chapter five, verse 33, when, when they want to kill the apostles, um, but Gamaliel stops them. Um, some translations will, will translate it as being cut to the quick, which is close to, um, being cut to the heart. As we saw in Acts two, verse 37, when Peter is preaching his first sermon. Um, but the difference, uh, you know, and there, the difference there is that, uh, the people respond um, in repentance. They're like, brothers, what shall we do? Um, and, and they repent and they accept the message. Um, but here the spirit convicts and the council rejects the message, rejects the work of the spirit and ultimately is just enraged and kills Stephen. And this is like, it's a super tragic closure to this, this chapter seven, but also to the chapter um, uh, of the story of the church in Jerusalem. Again, like these men who are, are murdering Stephen, they're religious leaders. They're the ones that are supposed to be leading a nation to God. 
and uh, they reject the message of the Messiah, a Messiah who's ultimately supposed to deliver them um, from the burden of the law and, and usher in a new way of connecting with God, um, that the God that they are apparently seeking. And, uh, and there's a few things that we can kind of pull from this narrative, this story. Uh, first is a warning against our own hardness. I mean, if religious leaders like devout people of God can fall, then we should not be so proud as to think that we can't. Um, the New Testament has several strong warnings in it uh, about not being hardened. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And, and the writer to the Hebrews um, says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. You know, he's pointing back and saying, Israel had this history. Don't don't do it for yourselves. Like today, with urgency, he says like every day, today, if you hear his voice, like when, if you're aware of what God is doing in your heart and his prompting in your mind um, and what he's trying to do in and through you, like don't resist that. Um, we need to be praying for our own hearts uh, that we would be in tune with the spirit, receptive to his work, that we wouldn't, we would be fertile soil, um, not the rocky soil and not the, uh, not the road and, and not um, the soil that is uh, surrounded by thorns and thistles. You know, um, we want to be fertile soil that will uh, accept what the Spirit is doing and, uh, and be humble enough to allow Him to change us. And, and so first, that, there's a warning for us and just a call to like prayer um, for, for our own hearts. And there's also a recognition um, that not everybody is going to be fertile soil. That some are going to reject the message of the gospel. As we go out in our communities and we witness about Christ, um, we can expect to, to maybe experience some either just like, um, like just people ignoring us or, or like antagonism. Um, some are going to reject this message of the gospel. Um, and that's, that's tragic and hard, but we leave that between um, them and God, we leave that with the Spirit, understanding that um, there's a mystery going on that that, that uh, in the way He works and in the way He He pulls people to Himself. But we can pray for a softening of the hearts of the people that we interact with. We can pray that they would be fertile soil as well, that they would not hold on to status and to their existing way of life the way that um, the religious leaders did. Um, but ultimately, we relinquish this into God's hands um, because, because he is sovereign and in, and in control. And, and on that last note of God's sovereignty and control, like we can, because of what we read in Acts here, we can praise God um, because he is pulling together uh, strings in history um, in a way that is just mind-blowing. Like we've got Israel's history that he's, where he's taken them on this journey um, and everything has kind of worked together to build towards Christ. And we also see in Acts that he is building his church that like Darcy talked about last week, it's unstoppable. Um, it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and to the ends of the earth. And we're about to see that shift. You know, this is a a symbolic rejection by the nation of Israel uh, of the message of the gospel. Um, and, and the New Testament highlights that the message had to go to the Jews first, but then with its rejection, it went to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. And we're seeing all of that play out in real time here. Um, in chapter 8, we're going to see that because of um, a persecution that started with Stephen's death, um, the church is scattered and the expansion continues uh, to other regions. So in all of this, 
uh, today we have a prayer for ourselves, a prayer that we would not be hardened by sin or by our own resistance of the Spirit's work in our lives. We have a prayer for others that they would be soft um, and receptive to the message of the gospel. And we can praise God because in all of this, he is sovereign and he is in control. And while this Jerusalem chapter um, that we've read about up to this point in Acts has closed in, in the tragic death of an innocent man, uh, we understand that what some intended for evil, God can use for good. And he is going to take uh, this and he is going to use it to move his church outwards and to advance the kingdom. So we can thank him for that because ultimately, because of that, uh, the gospel message reached us today. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, that you are sovereign and you are in control. We thank you uh, that uh, nothing can stop your kingdom and that you will continue to accomplish your work. We pray for ourselves that we would not be hardened by sin, that we uh, would soften our hearts today to be receptive to your work. We also pray for those in our community that they would also uh, have eyes to see and ears to hear, and that they would not uh, reject your truth, but they would instead uh, receive it. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your greatness. In the precious and perfect, powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.